You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. He's been busy on our television special on the Ukrainian president, an extraordinary address to Parliament. Dramatic. The very fact that he was in an undisclosed location, speaking to Canadian parliamentarians of all parties, live uh, from a country that is under attack, where people are dying uh, basically all day, every day. Um, It was quite an extraordinary address. I, I wouldn't say any surprises, but what struck me was how personal it was and how he appealed to Canadians all across the country to think about your own cities. Imagine if you woke up and he personally addressed the Prime Minister, Justin, and the Ottawa airport was under attack. And you were getting daily reports of the number of dead, of the number of people who have been maimed by Russian aggression. Some of the words Zelensky used. Um, standing ovations for um, for him in a bipartisan way, in an extraordinary um, plea, of course. He is asking for extraordinary things in extraordinary times. The lay people out there, we're going to talk to Evan later in the show. He's Evan's going to join us on the Evan Solomon Show. He's, he's on TV right now. Uh, we're also going to speak with Bob Ray, uh, Canada's representative at the UN. Um, I, I know as a layperson myself, I'm like, just enforce the no-fly. Like, why, why wouldn't you just do that? They're clearly killing people and killing civilians. And as we've learned, of course, uh, for a non-NATO country, uh, that is a direct uh, intervention with Russia. The problem, and so that is the that is the reluctance from NATO's point of view to essentially go to battle over the air in Ukraine, a former Soviet republic, now its own country, and essentially fight Russia in the skies. Uh, that would be that would be an extraordinary escalation, and there is hesitancy there. The prime minister telling Lisa Laflamme last week, "It's not something we can do. We have to say no." For now, the problem with it is, what if this is, what if this is one of those moments we're going to look back on if we had just done more early, we would have been able to protect more people and more countries. No one knows if that's the case here, but it does have that very heavy feel that the relentlessness of Putin and Russia is not limited to Ukraine, even if the campaign has not gone according to plan and has been a bit of a, well, there's been problems all over the place for the Russians. Still, I want you to listen to Volodymyr Zelensky addressing Parliament just a few moments ago. And we'll start with Justin Trudeau before... Uh, President Zelensky spoke. This was what the Prime Minister said to Canadians and parliamentarians. Volodymyr, in the years I've known you, I've always thought of you as a champion for democracy. And now democracies around the world are lucky to have you as our champion. So there was a lot of that. And what's striking is, is that Zelensky is 
is clearly um, a modern leader who knows how to get his message across in many different ways. Uh, whether it's uh, in the early days of the campaign on social media, much of it driven by social media, the fact that he was not leaving Ukraine despite Russian disinformation that he was on the run. Similarly, this address here today, I, I think he, he, he took great pains to speak to Canadians in language in a, in a way that they understood, to relate the attack on Ukraine to Canada. Here is one of his first points. I appreciate, uh, I need your patience here. It's through a translator, but I, I think you get the sense of his, of his strategy here. Speaking to Canadians, people who live in cities like Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, or around the region and, and the places that you know. Here is Zelensky on what if bombs fell here. Currently, we have 97 children that died during this war. Can you imagine famous CN Tower in Toronto if, they, if it was hit by Russian bombs? Of course, I don't wish this on anyone, but this is our reality. He said the same about the Ottawa airport. I mentioned that earlier. He used Canadian symbols like the CN Tower. He asked MPs and senators to imagine aerial bombardment, cruise missile strikes, columns of tanks, the besiegement of Canadian cities, and the shelling of civilian neighborhoods. Close the airspace. Please stop the bombing. How many more cruise missiles have to fall on our cities until you make this happen? He talked about NATO. In response to our aspiration to become members of NATO, we also do not hear a clear answer. And given that it's through a translator for clarity, it, it does not translate well in terms of um, in terms of the emotion of the moment and uh, how pin drop silent it was in the House of Commons. But underscoring that he is asking them to clear the airspace. He will ask the same of the Americans later. Clearing the airspace means a direct conflict with Russia. And NATO so far has been saying, we can, we can do a lot. We can do sanctions. We can do pressure on the Russians, extraordinary pressure on the Russians, by the way, and the Russian economy. Something the world has never seen. But we can't go that far. Um, I want to go to number five, where he asks more of Trudeau's leadership. I hope you can increase your efforts, you can increase sanctions so they, don't, so they will not have a single dollar to fund their war effort. He wants them to go further. He wants more sanctions, deeper sanctions to stop the war effort. So we're going to talk to Evan later in the show about that, his impressions of it. And are we, I mean, Canada would not obviously make a, um, make a move on its own. It would be a NATO alliance move. And I guess the question for our text board and for your calls later in the show I don't want to know about whether you support a no-fly zone. What, what do you think it will take for NATO 
Some of you are already texting saying, this is like the start of World War II. I, I, I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's the case, if it's the start of the Second World War. It certainly has very similar uh, trend lines and very similar feelings in terms of the way the Russians are acting. And maybe it's Ukraine first, then it's Latvia. Um, the Finns are worried. Germany is now rearming. There, there are themes here that make a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. So I, I don't know personally if this is the start of a much wider conflict. What are your thoughts? Do you think it is? Do you think it's Canada's test here and NATO's test and America's test to get into this thing in a bigger way because it's inevitable that you will, that we will, or... Is this contained to just Ukraine and Russia? Because remember, taking that step, taking that direct conflict directly to Russia is not something that NATO can take lightly because they are not a member of, the, of NATO and this would be NATO against Russia, something for decades now everyone has tried to avoid since the Second World War. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. We are back on the Evan Solomon Show in just a moment. Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You all need to do more to stop Russia, to protect Ukraine, and by doing that, to protect Europe from Russian threat. They're destroying everything. We're not asking for much. We're asking for justice. That is President Zelensky just a few moments ago through a translator. We're not asking for much. We're asking for justice. An emotional, blunt, clear speech, uh, speaking to Canadians about whether, how they would feel if their cities were under attack and civilians in our country were dying. An extraordinary address from a war zone, from a country under attack. Major General retired. Uh, Dennis Thompson joins us on the line now. He's served 39 years in the Canadian Army. Um, and uh, including command of NATO, uh, the task force in Kandahar and special operations forces. Thanks so much for joining us, Major General. Thanks for having me and good afternoon. When you hear that, Zelensky say, do more to stop Russia, close the airspace. He knows it's not that simple. Why is it so complicated? And what, what does that ask actually mean? Well, essentially, a no-fly zone is not only impractical from a political standpoint, but also from a military standpoint. And there are three reasons for that. The first is that a no-fly zone will not stop artillery and ballistic rockets. They will keep coming whether there's a no-fly zone in place or not. It won't the stop the bombs. Is, it, it, well, won't, it won't stop the missiles. Right. It'll stop aircraft, but artillery, ground-based artillery and ground-based ballistic missiles that are fired from ground-based launchers, 
will not be affected because some of them are, and I'll get to this in a second, are underneath the Russian air defense envelope. And some of them are actually being fired from Russia proper. So they're out of reach of a no-fly zone. So that's the first reason. It, it's, it's, it won't stop the principal mechanism of destruction that Russia is currently using. Second is that Russian ground forces always operate under an air defense envelope. And it is provided by a system that is known as the S-400 that has a range of 400 kilometers and a whole host of other mission, uh, other missile systems. It is world-class and it would have to be defeated first before you could declare that you had a no-fly zone. That would imply offensive actions against those air defense systems, something that in military circles is called suppression of enemy air defense. And uh, it would cause cost a lot of casualties on both sides. Some people might flag up and say, well, why doesn't NATO use stealth aircraft? And stealth, just to remind your listeners, does not equate to invisibility. It basically means that you get detected at a much shorter range, but it does not present a zero risk option. So that's number two. You have to defeat the Russian air defense envelope. Let me, and let then me just, the third so, thing. Sorry, let me, just, let me just stop you there because uh, it's important what you're saying. When you say no fly, it sounds simple. It's far from it. It's not just planes. And the assumption made on planes is a very big one from a civilian perspective, correct? It sure is. Uh, they have a limited range. For instance, you can't reach the western part of Ukraine with a military aircraft unless you use air-to-air -air refueling. Uh, and But you can reach it with ballistic missiles again, and certainly with their cruise missiles, some of which are fly at... Uh, over Mach 1, so they fly at Mach 3 or something, and they're almost impossible to intercept with a jet fighter anyway. So yes, you're right. It's not just about aircraft. As I mentioned before, it's about ballistic rockets and artillery. Okay. But the third, third reason is, is the risk to NATO. We, I'm not going to talk about the politics, but if this does become, if it is seen as an offensive act, then that means NATO states become vulnerable to ballistic attacks from Russia. At a minimum, they would go after NATO's military air bases, and in the extreme, they'd go after the population centers. Mm -hmm. Now, NATO does have some ballistic missile air defense systems in place. They can intercept Russian ballistic missiles, but again, they won't get them all. It won't be 100% effective, and it'll result in a large number of casualties amongst NATO forces, and that's when this thing spirals into World War III. And it's... Um... It is tempting to just to do something militarily beyond giving them arms, money, um, and sanctions against Russians. It is tempting to push for military action because, of course, in real time, we're seeing people die. Like, in real right. time, we're seeing in Eastern Europe, Russians... Uh, we're seeing a war. We're seeing bombs. Right. We're seeing... Uh, missile attacks, we're seeing buses blown out, maternity wards hit. Is there anything NATO can do militarily that well, does they are not? They're, yeah. providing, they're providing weapons to them. Let me, let me just uh, is talk that, about I guess, sorry, for a second. I, I just, is that as far as they can go? And that's very far, isn't it, giving Ukraine weapons? Well, it sure is, but, but let me expand on that a bit. Canada has nothing to be ashamed of up to this point. For Since 2014, we have provided some 200 soldiers on a rotational basis to, to train the Ukrainian forces. That means we have laid hands on over 30,000 Ukrainian junior leaders. 
And the focus of that mission, as I mentioned, is junior leadership. And you can tell that there's been a market change, at least uh, the officers that I have spoken to, in the style of Ukraine's fighting from what used to be Soviet-style top-down leadership to more effective decentralized command and control where initiative is exercised on the ground. Contrast that with how the Russian forces are operating and you begin to understand why they are suffering, and I'm talking about Russia here, not just the Ukrainians, mm. why, why the Russian army is suffering so badly and being mauled so badly by Ukrainian forces. Uh, I've also stated in other, uh, in other instances, it's worth remembering Napoleon's statement that moral, the moral is to the physical as three is to one. In other words, morale is extremely important and it's rock bottom in the Russian forces and couldn't be higher amongst the Ukrainians. So yes, we're likely to see a continuing parade of atrocities and that's very unfortunate, but I don't think that the Ukraine forces are down and out yet. And the best thing that NATO can do and Canada can do is to continue to feed them weapons that they can use. And by that, I mean anti-tank weapons and not super sophisticated ones, because, uh, for instance, the idea that MiG-29s would be flown to uh, Ukraine is interesting, but the devil is always in the detail. It's not just a matter of throwing the keys at the next pilot and say, here, here you go. It's right. not a sports car. It's something that requires a lot of maintenance. That's the uh, the reference to the Polish situation that was on again, off again. It, and it's it's much more involved than just giving them jets, is your point. Right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we're speaking with Major General Dennis Thompson, retired, uh, about about this. Uh, and, and I want to, uh, two things that I don't know that you seem quite confident in is that Russia seems to be in trouble, even though they're much larger force, and that Ukrainian forces seem to have high morale. You're very confident in those two things? Well, indeed I am. In fact, uh, the numbers are interesting. I don't believe there are more than 200,000 Russian soldiers committed to this fight. And by now, there's at least 200,000 Ukrainian citizens who are committed to this fight. So the, the numbers uh, are not a real measure here. The, the big problem for Russia, and I'm speaking now from my experience in counterinsurgency, is if you wish to secure a population, you need around 20 secu security force personnel for every thousand people in the population. If you do that math in Ukraine, it means that if you want to occupy Ukraine as Russia, you need at least 800,000 soldiers or security force personnel. In other words, army and police. Not They're nowhere happen. near that number. Yeah. And, and, and they will, as a result, suffer continuing casualties, not just because their morale is, is in the bottom, but also because uh, they don't have the numbers. They and, physically do not have the numbers to occupy that country. And very quickly before I go, how much of a factor is the is it that the the population is hostile to the russians it appears that there is very little support on the ground from civilians uh for the liberation in quotes or the invasion of the russian troops it's enormously important you cannot win an insurgency without having the support of the population and in addition you can't win unless you can somehow isolate the country from its support, its exterior support, which they will continue to receive from Poland and Romania. So uh, it, it's it's paramount that they have the support of the population, and there is no chance in the uh, in the foreseeable future that that would happen. Thank you, so Dennis Russia Thompson. Will grind on and continue to pound Ukraine in their battle of uh, annihilation.
This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks for being here, everybody. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan. Uh, An extraordinary speech from President Zelensky just a few moments ago in Parliament Hill uh, to a full House of Commons in person, uh, pleading with Canadians and with parliamentarians to do more. Imagine if the CN Tower was under attack. Imagine if the Ottawa airport uh, was being bombed just as Justin Trudeau woke up with his children. That is what Zelensky told Canadians just a few moments ago. Evan Solomon actually has been covering this on television. That's why I'm here today, and he's on television. He jumped off to speak to us. Evan, what were your impressions? A very personal speech, I thought. A very uh, Speaking directly to Canadians, not in a way that uh, we often see in international politics. Hey, Graham, and, and thanks for jumping in today. Uh, I really appreciate it as I was uh, hosting and co-hosting with Marcia McMillan that the special historic coverage of this speech by President Zelensky, a battlefield address, Graham, mm-hmm. not just the first virtual speech. This is something that we've never seen. He's literally on a battlefield. If you look at pictures of Kiev, the capital where he is there, the Russians are bombing apartment buildings. and And his speech... And he's a masterful communicator, we know. As they once said about Winston Churchill, he um, militarized the English language and sent it into battle. And, mm. and, and this is what Zelensky is like, Churchill, in many ways. He, he, his use of the word imagine, his personal address to Justin Trudeau as Justin, his name-checking Canadian cities and landmarks, Mm-hmm. To try to say, this is personal, this is powerful, this is purposeful and persuasive. So first, personal. And he made it personal. Imagine the bombs dropping. Imagine 97 children dead. Imagine hearing your children asking what's going on. Imagine waking up at 4 in the morning. It was, uh, it was personal. But it was also purposeful mm-hmm. because he quickly shifted, as he's done, to this is not enough you need to give us air support. And and this is the red line for NATO. NATO will not put boots on the ground. It will not put jets in the air for no-fly zone because that's, you know, the meaning of that is to knock out Russian jets or Russian air defenses, and then you're in a hot war with Russia, and that's the red line because NATO's not a, uh, Ukraine's not a NATO member. But it was very purposeful. We need help, and he's not giving up on that. And, and, and it was very persuasive because... He's an incredible speaker. The Ukrainians have uh, resisted for 20 days, the Russians, in a remarkable, heroic way. And and the Russians have been bloody-minded and brutal in a way we've seen in Aleppo, we've seen in Georgia, we've seen in in, in other places. Um, And their assault continues. So, boy, what what a day to, to hear this guy under a city in siege to take 12 minutes. And he's addressing, by the way, um... Uh, the U.S. Congress tomorrow, but to address Canada today, um, Canada being the first um, with Poland, the first country to recognize Ukraine in 1991 as a as a as an independent nation, as you well remember, Graham. But I, I thought it was one of the more a speech I'll never forget. I uh, the only uh, and it's it's uh, we probably shouldn't do this. But, it you know, what other speeches to Parliament come to mind? I mean, I'm thinking of Nelson Mandela. I'm thinking of um, of his speech and the way it uh, it like you're not the only one who's never going to forget that speech. 
the difference here, and I, and I, I don't, I don't think we can emphasize it enough. The difference here is the personal danger he's in, the fact that he's in a war zone, the fact that people are dying around him, um, and uh, this was not part of the Russian plan. The Russian plan was to take him out quickly, clearly, and that hasn't happened. Um, we had Dennis Thompson on just before you came on, and he spelled out very, very clearly the potential quagmire that would result if NATO did what Zelensky is asking. Like when you see, when you say enforce a, a no-fly zone, that is a very, very involved thing to do because of the air defenses, because of the artillery that they have, and very quickly it would become a much wider conflict. Does he think he is going to win this argument and NATO is eventually going to do this? Or I, I guess we we just don't know because it's such a massive step for the alliance to take. Yeah, let me just pick up on two things, Graham, that you said. First, the danger he's in. And I spoke to Andrei Shevchenko, the former Canadian ambassador to the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, who's in Kiev and Lviv. And I also spoke to the Chargé d'Affaires today, Andrei Bukvich. Uh, both of them have confirmed that there have been more than a dozen assassination attempts by Russia and, and, and Russian uh, forces uh, on President Zelensky in the last 20 days. More wow. than a dozen assassination attempts. So when you say he's under threat, he's mm. under genuine threat. They are trying to kill him. And they are doing so because they realize how important he is. So these are not abstract. These are not philosophical, imagined. This is he's not only on a battlefield where Kiev and other cities are getting pounded. He's a legitimate target um, for assassination. And they both confirmed that to me uh, this morning. So that's the first thing. So, I, I mean, how real does that get? Yeah. Uh, the second thing is you're 100% right, and uh, General Thompson and General Fraser and NATO realizes the call for a no-fly zone. Um, and it was, by the way, interesting that Candace Bergen, the interim leader of the Conservatives, said we need air support for humanitarian corridors. Look, she's not wrong in the sense that they do need it. The problem is once you go there, you're in a hot war with Russia. Uh, you don't just fly jets out, and that's not to that's not what a no-fly zone is. A no-fly zone requires enforcement. Enforcement means you've got to either A, take out Russian air defenses, so that's means missiles from NATO jets onto the ground, onto Russia, and that's direct. Or you have to take out Russian fighter jets, right. and you're in, you're, in, you're in a dogfight in the air. So NATO knows this. Russia knows this. And, and everyone's avoiding that. Be, look, Russia just sent more than a dozen cruise missiles uh, to Yavriv, the, 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 the base that was the headquarters for the Canadian training mission. That's 15 to 20 kilometers from the Polish border. That's already about as bloody dangerous as it gets. So, you know, we are inches away from a, from a hot yeah. war with Russia already. And, but I think all sides recognize that, you know, once that happens, there's no telling where this goes. So for now, there's containment, and it is a heavy moral decision and a moral price to pay because when you listen to President Zelensky, the moral price is if we don't do that, Ukrainians are going to die. And, and that is what's happening. And the burden of leadership to make these decisions weighs heavily on all NATO leaders right now. The, the other thing, again, stepping back. So where are we? Like, I guess this is it. And 
we've got to wait for Putin to pull out back down, which doesn't look likely. Or we've got to wait for the insurgency to get so bad that the Russians can't take the losses anymore. And how many civilians and how many apartment buildings and hospitals and maternity wards get wrecked in the next what? How long? That's, well, that's, what's hard to, that's what's hard to, to calculate here. Yeah, and you're right. Although, let's just be clear about what this is it means. There is a remarkable and a very, yes. very heavy supply of lethal weapons uh, coming into Ukraine. Yes. Uh, there's anti-aircraft. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. And the it's, sanctions it's are extraordinary. The sanctions yeah, right. are not to be dismissed. Look, at Putin's shut down the media. He's making tens of thousands of arrests. He's got an internal problem. Uh, and while Russians don't have a, a sense of what's going on, let, let's, let's be clear. There are lethal weapons pouring into Ukraine, and that's why Russia sent those cruise missiles to the West. They know this is getting hard. Mm-hmm. Their logistics are bad. This has gone on longer. This is a brutal war. Now, they may want to fight it for all sorts of reasons, and they're looking for some kind of bridge out. But... But when we say this is it, uh, these wars, even without air, can go on for a long, bloody time. But the West is is making a lot of effort here. We shouldn't underestimate it as well, Graham. As you know, it's your show. we got to pay bills. you got to pay the bills. Thanks for uh, jumping on. You've had a busy day, and we'll see you on Power Play. Thanks a lot, my friend. You're the best. Thanks, Graham. Okay, that's Evan Solomon. And we are back on the Evan Solomon Show in just a minute. I'm Graham Richardson. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. We're going to shift gears just for a minute here. I want to talk about the conservative leadership race, and I want you to text me in on this. Um, Like, we are, what, four days in, and we've already got the mud flying left, right, and center. I'm not one of these people who says, oh, it's such an awful thing that things get sharp and ugly in politics. I mean, I think I think attack ads, I think attacks, I think uh, contrasting ads can be uh, can be clarifying for a lot of people. Um, But we have people being accused of not being conservatives. Uh, We have people being accused of uh, supporting things and being anti-immigrant. And we have people being accused of being liars. And that's just the three leaders or three people vying for the leadership. And what are we on, day three? Like Patrick Brown got in the race on Sunday. As he got into the race, the Polyev campaign, Pierre Polyev, very, very sharp elbows, very, very early. Everyone senses the handiwork of Jenny Byrne here. I don't know if it's Jenny Byrne, but it sure looks like a Jenny Byrne campaign, which uh, a lot of people are envious of in conservative circles. Listen to this attack ad on Patrick Brown. Patrick Brown claimed he grew the party's membership to 200,000 members, but it was later revealed that number was overinflated by about 70,000. Patrick Brown, he'll say and do anything. Uh, by the way, who invented the, um, who invented the music bed for attack ads? It sounds like um, kind of like carnival music except yeah there it is. Brown. except He'll the joker say and do anything like, I, I see the joker from the 60s batman 
TV show madly playing a warped piano. Can we hear that one more time? Patrick Brown. He'll say and do anything. The, uh, the, uh, and the Polyev campaign is loving the fact that we keep looping their ad, right? Okay, so, so anyway, Brown responds immediately saying, Polyev wants a fight? He's going to get a fight. Why did he support the 2015 Niqab ban that the Harper government in the dying days in the campaign that they lost in 2015 and the snitch line on barbaric practices infamously brought in in 2015? Patrick Brown says Pierre Polyev has never said a word about supporting those. And they, of course, pointed everyone to... Pierre Polyev in 2015. It is completely reasonable to ask someone to show their face while they're giving an oath of citizenship. It is a sacred moment uh, of citizenship and of loyalty to country that must be witnessed by one's peers. That is Polyev in 2015 saying that people should not wear a head covering when they give the oath of citizenship. That it's, it's a, you heard him, it's a reasonable thing. Since then, he hasn't said much. Here he is again. This We're not is... going to succumb to uh, uh, political correctness uh, in, in order to uh, accommodate a practice uh, that is not in line with Canadian values. There it is. Values. Now, that's 2015. We're, uh, we're seven years on, right? So I, I'm not... I'm not 100% clear if the 2015 Pierre Polyev believes that in 2022 um, or if he's going to bring that policy forward or if they're not going to do that or where he stands on Bill 21. And we haven't even talked about Jean Charest. Charest apparently says he's opposed to Bill 21. This is the essentially what the Conservatives proposed in 2015 is actually law in Quebec. Not only that... Um, I don't have to remind everyone that a teacher in Chelsea, she lost her job over this issue. So Charest says he's opposed to Bill 21. We're assuming, which of course doesn't mean he's going to fight Quebec and he's going to, uh, he's going to do anything about it because, you, you know, you can't, just like Justin Trudeau, you can't, uh, you, you, can, you can say things against it, but you can't really do much about it, especially when you're trying to attract the support in Quebec. This is a provincial issue. But my question, largely, why why is this so open and uh, nasty so early? Leadership races, generally speaking, especially longer ones, they're not voting until September. They they are fairly polite engagements for the first few months. Not this one. Day three, and they're at it. Here's what I think. Why? Here's why I think. That's what's happening here. The Conservatives beat the Liberals on popular vote for the last two elections by one and a half points. More people voted for Conservatives than voted for Liberals. If you're a Conservative listening to this, you know this. The problem is where those people live and where they're concentrated, there aren't enough seats. It's a Western um, domination kind of a thing. So if you're going to sweep Alberta... It doesn't matter if you get 70% or 80%, those, that extra 10 points, while it counts for popular vote, it doesn't count for seats. I mean, this may seem obvious, but if you look at the Liberal support, it's concentrated in the cities. It's concentrated in the cities. So the question for Liberals 
and for conservatives heading into the next election. How do the liberals hold the cities? And how does this party in this leadership get into the cities? It's not impossible at all for the conservatives, of course. Under Mr. Harper, they won large swaths of the 905 around Toronto. They won significant numbers of seats in the lower mainland. They had a concentration of seats in in and around Quebec City, not large. They didn't get Montreal. But of course, under Mr. Mulroney, a wide sweep of Quebec, a massive landslide. Understand we're not, we're in a very different time now. So I think this is why this leadership is so important. Because they feel like the Liberals, whether it's going to be Justin Trudeau again, or Christian Freeland, or Anita Nand, or Mark Carney, or someone else, they are vulnerable and beatable. And it is not entirely impossible to see um, a spread in vote-rich areas flipping back from red to blue like they did before. By the time this campaign rolls around after the leadership race, keep in mind, we will be almost at nine years of liberal rule if they go for another couple of years as a minority government. Eight to nine years. That's a long time. That's a long time. So it is about who gets to sit in Stornoway, but it's also about maybe who's going to form the next government. After the next hour, we're going to take some calls on that. We're going to take your texts. We've got quite a few. Um, the biggest issue today in Canadian government should be election reform, says Steve from Centertown. That's a point. That's Centertown in Ottawa. That's a fair point. And uh, he, he's got a point there that um, given the raw vote, is it time to take a look at how the electoral system spreads out those votes? Of course, Justin Trudeau famously said they would do that. And then they didn't, largely because their party benefits massively from a concentration of votes in cities. The other question I have, and I want your thoughts, do you think it can be this intense this long? Pierre Polyev, Patrick Brown is lying about the Harper government, but that's not a surprise because he lies a lot. Is that going to be the tone for the next several months all through a long, hot summer as conservatives choose their next leader? It'll be quite a race. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad you're here. We just uh, listened to President Zelensky speak to Canadian Parliament, uh, trying to relate exactly what's going on in his country to Canadians, talking about what would you do if the CN Tower was under attack, if the Ottawa airport uh, was being bombed and Justin woke up with his children, referring to the Prime Minister by his first name. Uh, a, an extraordinary address from a wartime president in a war zone. The other uh, people, of course, uh, uh, right in the middle of it are um, our team from CTV National News. Uh, Joy Malvin is on the line. 
uh, from Lviv. Joy, paint me a picture of, uh, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're extremely busy on these assignments, but paint us a picture uh, on the ground where you are. Um, how are people uh, coping and, and how intense is it where you are right now, if you can? Yeah, I, I'm in a place called Lviv, and it's near the Polish border. And uh, a day or so ago, there was uh, a bombing, Russian missiles uh, targeting a military base where Canadian soldiers used to train, and NATO forces used to train there. Uh, it, it's a gateway for weapons and Western aid uh, getting in, and that's why the Russians targeted it. As a result, the past few days have been quite intense here in the sense that uh, air raid sirens have gone off all morning. We just had one about an hour ago. Um, and there was a, a bunker in this hotel uh, where everybody heads down there. And uh, the other night at three in the morning, um, people in the hallways were banging on my door to get up and, and go downstairs uh, to be safe. There is a feeling, even though this is a World Heritage Site, it's a gorgeous city with beautiful grand old buildings, there is a feeling that war is on the doorstep, even though they're quite far away. Because, of course, the Russians have been pushing west. Um, we have seen um, just horrible pictures of a brutal assault in, in Kiev. Of course, that's the capital. That is the prize. Russia wants to crush this city. Mm. And uh, today there have been apartment fires as there were yesterday. And the, this is where families are living. And it feels as if uh, as if the people in this city, in, in this country, are being terrorized as part of this war, that civilians are being targeted. And, of course, there are um, investigations by several countries, including the U.K., gathering evidence to see if, uh, you know, they can build a case of war crimes against Vladimir Putin. Do you see, Joy, I always find it striking in tragedies. I haven't covered a war like this, but the signs that that people are still trying to get on with normal in some small ways. Are you seeing any of that or have yeah. so many people fled that, that it's just, it's not like that at all? Well, I, I've been in Poland where uh, we met many, many refugees, um, but here I am in Lviv, Ukraine. And I agree with you. Uh, in Lviv, I see people going about doing their normal business. Uh, they're buying groceries, although the shelves are, are getting emptier and emptier. I did see something on Sunday uh, that gets me a bit verklempt. Uh, we went to a church because this is Orthodox, and uh, there were soldiers praying. Uh, there was mass being celebrated. And we, we actually just walked into a wedding. Uh, there was a bride and a groom there, and I spoke to her afterwards, Uliana, and she was getting married um, to her husband, uh, this groom. It's a beautiful, elaborate ceremony. I have a, a best friend who's Ukrainian, and uh, it is a gorgeous ceremony. But I asked her, I said, how do you feel right now getting married in the middle of a war zone? And she said she has mixed emotions. She's very, very happy. She's getting married to her beloved. But then she tells me that he's going off to war tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And and it just struck me that I can't believe I'm in the middle of what feels very surreal. People are trying to, to, to hope, trying to live a normal life, as you say, and yet there is this all this horror going on. We were speaking also to military people with high connections in NATO, Joy, uh, on, and, and they're here, not there. Um, and and 
Dennis Thompson was emphatic that he believes and knows that the Russian side is suffering uh, low morale and they're having challenges. And he believes the Ukrainian people and the morale of the people in Ukraine is very high. I, I appreciate it's very difficult to measure that on a micro level, even from where you are. Is that your sense that there is this resolve amongst the Ukrainian people to do whatever it takes to try to turn this horror back? Can can you say that, or is is it too just too difficult to measure? Well, I, I think we can look to Ukraine's president, um, uh, Mr. Zelensky, who daily. Uh, post stuff on social media. He has news conferences. He he addressed uh, Canadian Parliament today. He will talk to the U.S. Congress tomorrow. And every day, he tells them that we are winning. Every day, he says, you know, uh, this is our pride. This is our independence. And it truly does, from the, the, the few people that I have spoken here, it truly does inspire them. This leader, I, I mean, we've all, you know, heard people compare him to Churchillian, uh, you know, uh, Winston Churchill. And, mm-hmm. and, and yet, you know, I see people putting up flags, Ukrainian flags, I see. I saw a, a busker the other day uh, playing "Hallelujah," Leonard Cohen's "Hallelujah." You, you see these small, little. Um, uh, sorry, extremely tired, and the words you can't take a little. You're longer. doing fine, as um, always. You're doing fine. <laughs> you see these demonstrations of pride in Ukraine, in 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 the fact that we are going to do this. Now, look, you know, the the president. Uh, Zelensky, he talks about how we've downed 80 airplanes and we've done this and we've done that and we've, uh, you know, attacked this. It's almost a bit like guerrilla warfare, um, but but it is something that does inspire the people. And I'm not sure if he wasn't out there every day putting posts on social media and talking to the people uh, that they would feel, um, you know, or be as defiant as they are right now. Before I let you go, people are always interested in how you do your work. Um, and it's, I know I appreciate it's less important than the larger story of what the war is, is doing to these people. How easy is it for you or difficult is it for you and the crews to get around? Um, uh, how safe do you feel? And uh, w- what's it been like covering this? Well, to be honest with you, in Lviv, I felt pretty safe up until a few days ago. The the air raid sirens are the thing that quite jar you. Like when we were filming the bride and groom getting married, we we were walking back with our camera equipment, and all of a sudden you hear this blasting, and you can hear just a few little English words, war, Russia, uh, and and this kind of piercing sound. And, uh, you know, uh, people kind of hurried. Uh, they didn't quite run, uh, but they kind of went into shelters. They kind of uh, went into there. And, and certainly this is not anything like Kiev. Kiev is under assault. It is brutal. Uh, I mean, people living in their own homes and apartment buildings are being targeted. Um, you know, older people, women and children, those who are left. And, of course, so many refugees who I've spoken to who have flooded across the border, even here in, in Lviv, it's, it's a city of about 700,000. But 200,000 are refugees. They're either staying here, I, I, they're, they're bunking in gyms and schools. Everyone seems to be rolling.
filling out the, you know, the, the welcome mat for, for these people who suddenly find themselves homeless and, and bewildered by, by what is going on. You know, look, it, it's always hard, you know, Graham. <laughs> it, it's always hard. Internet doesn't work. We can complain about these things. But when I think about what is happening in this city and, and just look at, I, I mean, I look at the city of Maripol in the south where people have been trapped for days and days and and the images of, of that city being pounded and and of course there are images that, that just strike us and and you know break our heart um the the um the image of, of the pregnant woman yeah. who we found out just yesterday died and her baby died. It's like why are these hospitals being bombed? Uh it, it and why are residents being bombed? It's it's such brutality that um, it, it really does um, uh, rip your heart out. And the fact that I can't, uh, you know, get internet or something like this pales in comparison. Joy, Joy Malvin in Ukraine for us. Thank you. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan. Glad you could join us. Uh, If you're just joining us, you may have missed President Zelensky's speech to Parliament. Um, I I, I think it was an extraordinary address for a variety of reasons. Someone who knows uh, just a fair bit about giving speeches is Bob Ray, Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. He joins us on the line from New York. Uh, Thanks so much, Mr. Ray, for joining us. Um, what, what, what struck you about this speech? Evan and I talked earlier about, about the personal, uh, referring to the prime minister in the first name, talking about Canadian landmarks, what it would be like if they were under attack. Um, what was your sense of, of his message and how effective it was? Well, I think that, I think the message is very effective. I mean, the, the president is a very, a very good communicator uh, is a very good person I from everything I've seen uh, I think all of us have been very impressed with his leadership and and when you think about his speech it was it was very simple in its structure and it was only 12 minutes you know people should think about that those who are giving speeches yes myself included <laughs> should think about the fact that you don't have to go on forever you just have to focus and he focused very clearly on as you put it the personal which always is always a, a, a way to go. It's always the way to do it. Uh, and also focused very directly on thanking, uh, expressing appreciation, describing the situation as it's being experienced, asking us to imagine what it would be like if it was happening in one of our cities or homes, uh, and then asking us to do more. And I, I, I think, frankly, uh, none of us should have been surprised by what he said or what he put out there. Uh, and I think it's now up to all governments to try and respond uh, more effectively, because the bottom line is how effective are we being at stopping uh, Russian aggression? The sanctions are significant. The support for Ukraine from NATO in terms of arms, in terms of money is significant. What is it about, and, and I may be asking an obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway. What is it about no-fly and about going further uh, that causes such concern from NATO that is just the line they can't cross? Why? Well, I think the, I think the challenge is, 
of course, is the fact that Russia has the nuclear weapon. And the, 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 from day one, President Putin said, uh, I'm putting my country on nuclear alert. Um, and that was an obvious way for him to uh, make it clear that uh, he had certain red lines as well. Um, and look, neither you nor I are are uh, military experts. Um, I, I think he wants the bombs to stop falling. I think we all have to figure out what can we do uh, in, in order to help him be more effective in doing that. Understanding that right now the country that is the aggressor and the country that is unilaterally escalating every day the nature of the conflict is is Russia. And, and I don't like the notion, just instinctively, I guess, that uh, you let a bully set all the rules. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think that's something that all NATO leaders are are wrestling with and uh, and are thinking about saying, how can we be more effective in in the help that we're providing to Ukraine? Because I think all of NATO is united in in saying that we don't want Ukraine to lose. And we don't want Russia to win. And if that's true, then we have to try to be more effective. How effective have sanctions been? How hard are they biting in Russia? Do we have a true sense of that anymore? Well, sanctions are a very blunt instrument, but this is more blunt than most. I mean, it's it's been very effective, I think, in terms of disrupting uh, daily financial and economic life in, in Russia uh, I think the attack on on uh, on their central bank and limiting the ability of the central bank to go out and do things is also being uh, as having real impact and real effect. I think the dilemma is that sanctions take months to uh, to take fully to have full impact, uh, and that the, the military assault on Ukraine um, is is happening in in a different time zone, if you like. And so that's something we all have to reflect on as we as we understand the day to day risks that are happening. Uh, and it's not just an attack on Ukraine. Everybody needs to understand that Ukrainian agriculture is vitally important to the world's food supply. Uh, the head of the World Food, food Program is in uh, Ukraine today because he's trying to get a, an on the ground sense of what is the impact that this is going to have on inflation for bread and and for food for millions of people who are who are desperate uh it's having a, it's going to have a huge impact on trade around the world uh, and so we need to understand that the the dispute is not confined to Ukraine or confined to Russia and Ukraine it's a, it's this is a global conflict and the question is how much longer can we allow a global conflict to go on because of the tremendous consequences, let alone the, the refugee issue. There's now three million people who've left the country, millions more internally displaced. This is a direct consequence of Russian aggression. And that, that needs to be understood by everybody. How long can this kind of assault go on, both from the Russian perspective and the Ukrainian perspective? Do you have any sense of that? No, I can't give you a time frame. I think we've all been struck by the courage and by the resilience of the Ukrainian people and by their ability to uh, to withstand extraordinary punishment. Uh, and we I think we're just beginning to see the the, the full impact or the, 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 the in real time impact of the sanctions on Russia. Um, 
but uh, I don't think any of us could be complacent at the the cost of human life and the cost of human insecurity, not only in Ukraine, but around the world that's, that's, that Russia has created. Russia has not only attacked Ukraine, that Russia has attacked, has attacked the global community in, in what it has done. And I, I think that needs to be brought home to Russia and brought home to all of us as we begin to think about, well, what more can we do to bring this to an end? This is now a global crisis. What do you mean by that? Like, what more can we do? Like, deeper sanctions? What are you talking about? Well, I think I think in, I think in every everything that we're doing, we have to say, what more can we do? What more can we do on the refugee front? What more can we do on the humanitarian front? What more can we do on the accountability front? What more can we do on the military front? Uh, understanding that the purpose is to be effective and and not 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 to create an even greater counter reaction. And and what more can we do on sanctions? I think in every one of those areas, the test that we have to apply is the test of effectiveness. How effective are we being? I think you could say that we're the resistance so far has been very effective at, at stopping Russia from achieving a quick knockout blow. That's true. Mm-hmm. But now we have to deal with the, the, the consequences of, of what is happening to, uh, to, to the, as I said, not just to Ukraine, but to the world. Last quick question on this. Do you think he cares about the world condemning him and being a pariah in the world? Does he care? Because his actions show, I don't think that he, I don't think he does. And I don't know that it would have much of an impact at all. No, I don't think he cares. I think he cares about winning and losing. Uh, And I think he cares about getting his way. Uh, He doesn't care what people think of him. And that's why we have to be clear that that's why I keep inserting this effectiveness test. The, the, the effectiveness is, are we actually stopping Putin? I think we've stopped him to some in some degree. We've stopped him from achieving a knockout win, but we haven't knocked him out yet either. And that's something we have to we have to understand that you 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 can't just, you know, poke a bear in the eyes and say, I've, I've, look what I've done. You, you've got to understand there's a response and, and and we need to be able to withstand the response when it comes, because the response will come even stronger from somebody like Putin. He doesn't care about the reputational damage. He, he, you know, he wiped out the city of Grozny, killed thousands and thousands of people. And, and he is the inheritor of the Russian, of the Soviet system. And Soviets have killed millions of people and never thought, never thought a, a word of it. So we, we have to understand how brutal his regime is, but also how brutal the, the political tradition from which he comes is. And we have to deal with that. Ambassador Bob Ray, United Nations, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you're very busy. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Graham. Appreciate it, too. Bye-bye. That's Bob Ray. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. We're back after the break. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks so much for being here. It's Graham Richardson in for Evan. Um, Glad you can be here. Earlier in the show, we talked a bit about the conservative leadership race and how it has really heated up very early. I mean, Patrick Brown got in the race on Sunday. Um, Gloves flying, mud flying, gloves off, fighting. Uh, right away, Pierre Polyev 
accusing him of being a liar, that he lies a lot. Uh, Patrick Brown accusing um, Mr. Polyev of being a supporter of divisive policies in the past that hurt immigrants, like a niqab ban and a barbaric practices hotline that was infamously introduced during 2015's campaign where the conservatives lost. Um, Brown's point is that Mr. Polyev never really uh, denounced it and, in fact, at the time supported it. Um, joining me now is Mustafa Farouk. He's the chief executive officer for the National Council of Canadian Muslims. W- Mustafa, when you hear this come out, these issues come out this early in a race like this, uh, what do you think about it, first of all, and does it concern you? Well, I think, uh, and first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I think it should concern all of us because I think now is the time as Canadians when we need to come together. Uh, this isn't the time for political, for any community to be a political football for anybody. Yeah. Uh, really, now is the time, you know, we're, we're dealing with COVID-19. Uh, but of course, now we're all, you know, Canadians are worried about things happening abroad and in other countries uh, that has to do with security. A lot of us are worried about our jobs and economic futures. Uh, now is really the time to say, you know, enough is enough. Let's focus on, you know, making a Canada that's built for everyone. So these issues and these, um, the tone of this uh, suggests to me, I mean, this is, this is not a general election. It's an election uh, for the party. They're competing for conservatives to vote for them to be the leader. Um, Why do you think, why do you think it's a bad thing that they, I mean, I guess the other way you could look at this is if they have these discussions behind closed doors, at least this is out in the open now, but you would say it doesn't do anybody any good, particularly the Muslim community. Yeah, and look, I think the the, the practical reality is that the discourse that we see in leadership races carries over into the federal election mm. uh, because, of course, those who you know take positions now for their constituencies you know, often carry that over into general elections. And no matter what, stoking fires of fear, stoking fires of dissent, or creating misinformation, uh, these are not things that improve our quality of political discourse in in the nation. Uh, And I think we can all do better. If I understand Brown correctly, though, he's saying that his opponent should have condemned these more um, these these ideas more forcefully, or at least condemn them at all. I would assume that Brown would say to you that I'm actually, you know, out here trying to move the party in a more progressive way. What would you say to that? Look, I, I think the reality, like, we're not taking a particular position on who, you know, Canadian conservatives should vote for. It's not our responsibility. And I'm sure that Canadian conservatives who are getting involved will make up their own minds. I think what our concern is very squarely when we when certain politicians have taken positions on divisive politics in the past, let's make sure that we're taking accountability for that on a go forward. Mm. Well, I, I mean, it's the law in Quebec, for instance. Teachers have uh, been, 100%. been removed from their jobs over a head covering. Um, that's not. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 fair enough to talk about accountability, but if it's the law and it's popular. Um, you know, where do you, where, what do you do? What do you do with something like that? And I think that's especially a, such a critical question because, you know, the, the past leader of the Conservative Party, Leader Erdogan, 
you know, supported Bill, you know, Quebec's right to pass a law that said that not all Canadians are equal. And although he personally, quote unquote, opposed it, uh, he never did anything beyond that. And so the stance that a leader takes now on saying, do I really believe that every Canadian deserves the right to, you know, become a teacher? Uh, that is actually very germane and important for people to take good positions on. I think for many people um, who talk about the you know parties standing for religious freedom, now is the time to show it. You could say the same thing for Mr. Trudeau, the government of oh, Canada, 100%. right? Oh, I mean, 100%. he won't even he won't even like. Uh, it, it's very because it frustrates a lot. Even even quietly, the progressives will say, you know, like. We we are for equal rights, I thought, except when it comes to this particular issue. And he's from Quebec, and he won't he won't condemn it, or he will. He's very reluctant to be critical of Quebec in public over this. When, as I say, a teacher has lost um, lost their job just fifteen minute drive from here because she had a head covering. One thousand percent. History will look back and judge our prime minister's absolute failure to. Uh, in any serious way, combat Bill 21 with disgust and abhorrence. Um, it, it's just that simple. All right, Mustafa, we appreciate your time. Mustafa Farouk, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the National Council on Canadian Muslims. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. What do you think about this? We're getting uh, a lot of text about this, um, and we're going to read some of them and uh, take your calls uh, after the break. Uh, I want to know whether... Uh, you believe the Brown, Polyev, and to a lesser extent, Sheree tactics early on in this conservative campaign are hurting the party or helping the party? Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. You can also text us at 71010-71010. The number again, 1-855-633-1010. And if you're just joining us, we're basically day three of a leadership race that is very, very important. You know, traditionally, you win elections with the middle, right? You win elections with the nonpartisan middle. The people who aren't party members, who aren't partisans, in many cases, who aren't listening to shows like this one and getting all fired up about politics. You want to engage the widest possible group of people. And what's hard about leadership, whether it's liberal, NDP, or conservative, they're fighting for party members and they're fighting for the partisans. It gets very sharp and it can get very ugly. I don't know about all of you. I have rarely seen one get this ugly this quickly. And as I said earlier in the show, I think it speaks to the notion that conservatives as a party believe that they had Trudeau on the ropes, that he was vulnerable and he could have been beaten. and. For whatever reason, a bunch of them actually, it didn't happen. And they know the next time, especially if it's not Trudeau, they'll have a new liberal leader and it will be time for change. And they vigorously, passionately want to replace this man as prime minister. The absolute animosity for the prime minister in conservative circles and in many nonpartisan circles, is a very, very big factor going forward. I heard from uh, conservative candidates two things at the door. Well, actually, mainly one thing at the door, 
Um, even in even in liberal friendly cities, that there was a fair amount of animosity, a significant amount, in some cases, a visceral amount of animosity for the prime minister. He still won. He still campaigned. It was a slow start. It was a um, lackluster liberal campaign. Why are we doing this kind of a campaign? And he managed to he managed to pull it out. One eight five five six three three ten ten. You can text us at seven ten ten seven one zero one zero. I want to hear number one what you think about the race, and number two. Who in these early days is best to beat Justin Trudeau? The other factor here, by the way, that we haven't mentioned, Josh Ray uh, contracted COVID. So he's out of it for a few days as he recovers. Um, a lot of people don't know who he is. A lot of younger people. Many people know his name. So I'm wondering about whether that's a factor. Stay with us. I'm Graham Richardson. In for Evan Solomon. We'll take your calls and your texts right after this. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. Boy, we're uh, getting lots of reaction to this uh, question about the conservative leadership race and why it's so nasty so early. Uh, thanks so much for your text. Keep them coming, 71010. Uh, you can also call us 1-855-633-1010. Here are some of your texts. The leadership race will divide the conservative party in two, as it should be. The progressive side has to take the conservative name back. Well, the liberals would love that. Back to 1993, the reform and the PC party as the liberals go right up the middle. Uh, that's my comment <laughs> after that text. It's the Trumpian shift in the Tory party. Their attitude is that you're either with them or against them. It's a battle for the compass of the party. Brown is using Trudeau tactics, divide and conquer with little regard for harm caused. Your guest is right. I hope he holds the liberals and NDP to the same standards. I'm disillusioned with politics, disappointed with politicians. I'm not interested in the American style. Canada is not the 51st state. That's from Angela. Thanks. The contest is rough so early because the PM ship is likely the end result. I agree. It's this intense this early because there is a lot on the line. Tom is on the line right now. Tom, what's your sense of this race in the early days? Nothing good is going to happen by picking yourself up by putting others down. That is just the wrong thing to do. We saw with Sheer what happened when he got in. Uh, more, of course, the very right-wing conservatives, and others were cutting him up for that. And what the liberals do? Almost quote verbatim on this sort of stuff. So this is absolutely food for fodder for the liberals or the NDP in the next coming election, where they can say, look, at you're running a party, and all these people did not want you at all, and this is what they said. That's what really, really bothers yeah. me when you're and supposed to be on a team, Ammo sorry. for the sorry, sorry to interrupt, but ammo for the appoint uh, the uh, uh, for the opponents. That's what bothers you most about cons- about about leadership races in general when they go at each other like this. Yeah, and if you're a leader, you do not put down your employees. You do not put down your fellow anybody. So that does not show leadership to me. That shows narcissism. 
And I do not want to see a narcissistic prime minister. We already see what happens when we have one in right now. And I do not want to see the hierarchy get totally dismantled because of a few bad apples. We, the Conservatives must be united all the way. And if you have something bad to say about another person, just compliment yourself and say how you're so good and don't, just keep them out of it. That is uh, Tom from Newmarket. Appreciate the call. The, the the problem, I, I take everything that he says, and members of my family have said the same thing. Is like, oh, here we go again. I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to hear them sniping at each other. The problem is, is that attack ads work. <laughs> they, they zero in on inconsistencies, and they plant seeds in people's minds of doubt in your opponent. And even though people will tell pollsters, I don't like these things, Think about, think about, forget the conservatives for a second. Think about the Michael Ignatieff ads that Harper put out, that the Harper team put out. He's just visiting. He's not here for you. And when he lost, what did he do? He went back to Europe. He hadn't lived in the country for ages. I mean, this is a long time ago, but it, it speaks to when attack ads are effective, it's when they've got a kernel of truth in them that raises legitimate doubts about the person. Is it an attack ad from Polyev's point of view to say that Patrick Brown will do and say anything when they can demonstrate he's changed his position on a couple of things? Yes, it's an attack ad tone with the creepy music underneath and, you know, just don't trust him kind of a tone. But is it, that's why they sometimes call them contrasting ads as opposed to attack ads. But what I'm struck by is overall, right out of the gate, um, in particular, it's not just Polyev, it's the other campaigns too, but Polyev basically calling Brown a liar right out of the gate, saying he lies a lot. Another text from Phil, the conservative race feels like a division in party values coming to a head. It's identity, an identity crisis for the party, extreme right Polyev and Alberta versus progressive conservative Brown and Charest. They can't and won't win the extreme right. Brown and Trey will have the best chance. Phil, thanks for the text, Phil. I hear you on that, but I know the Polyev side will say in a heartbeat, we did the more moderate PC thing with Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole's first speech as leader, he talked about welcoming LGBTQ people into the party. He talked about... Uh, broadening the base. He talked about being an open party for everyone, and he reached out to cities right away. People living in cities, talking about climate change, all of those things. Immediately, people said, it kind of sounds liberal. It doesn't sound like a conservative. It is extraordinarily difficult for this party to be a difference from from the liberal party, be a conservative party, hold together the coalition of, in some cases, Quebec nationalists, but soft nationalists, uh, suburban Ontario now, in some cases when they're very successful, urban Ontario, and the populist West, and hold it all together and form government. Um, Stephen Harper did it, and he got a majority. Everybody paid attention to the orange wave in Quebec. Uh, Stephen Harper, the, that, that 2011 campaign, That was the biggest story out of that was the majority government for Stephen Harper. 
So it can be done. And I think the fight going forward, how do you do it? How do you do it? You know, Trudeau has wrenched his party in many ways to the progressive side, to the left. Like the party of Cretchen, the party of Martin is not the party of Trudeau in 2022. He is closer to the NDP than the Liberal Party has ever been. And he has been quite successful at that. Not as successful as he wanted to be because he thought he could get a majority. He didn't. So what does that mean for the Conservatives? Polyev says, let's go harder right. Sheree and Brown seem to be saying in these early days, it's time to moderate that message and try to appeal to francophones, to cities, to suburbanites, to more a broad group of people. And they would say, I know they would say, and Brown has essentially said it, that barbaric practices snitch lines and talking about these hot button issues doesn't get them there. It does not get them there. It's going to be fascinating to see because we can't ignore the fact that Polyev has a significant organization. He has a significant number of caucus, if not all of caucus. I won't say all, but a significant number locked down and supportive. If Sheree is going to win, he's going to need to bring in thousands of new party members and retell his story. Um, he started to do that, obviously a bit of a hiccup because he's got COVID. And then, of course, there's Baber and there's Leslin Lewis who are not being dismissed. But I think on, on the face of it, in terms of organization, name recognition, um, and chance to win this, so far, it appears that the three of them seem to be front runners and everybody gunning for Polyev. Everybody gunning for Polyev. It's never boring. People who say Canadian politics is boring, they're not watching. I'm Graham Richardson. Always a pleasure to sit in for Evan Solomon. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all your texts and your calls. Have a great afternoon.